I love being a dad. I absolutely love being a dad. And I would say that um, it is equal parts uh, the most fulfilling and the most amazing gift uh, that God has given me and, and my wife. But it is also equally uh, challenging at times. I think parents, we would all agree with that, that there's just some really, really challenging times. Um, one of our favorite things to do as parents is uh, to ask our kids at the different stages that they're in what they want to be when they get older. And I was talking with some people this week. Some people do that every birthday. And I find with, with our kids, it's like every other month or so because as they grow, they're, they're always changing, you know. And it's so exciting to say, hey, what do you want to be this month? <laughs> you know, what do you want to be when you get older? So I thought I would give you a, a real-time update. Uh, this morning, I asked my kids this question this week, and uh, was just curious about kind of where they're at. What do they want to be when they get older? Here's the real-time update for you today. So Micaiah, he's our nine-year-old. He's the oldest. And right now, he wants to be a chef. And, uh, and man, I really see this because almost every night for dinner, he's wanting to help Faith cook in the kitchen. Um, he, he loves watching cooking shows. Uh, so if there's a cooking show on or, you know, he'll actually ask to watch something on YouTube. And he's curious for how food is made, you know, and how different recipes go together and the right ingredients. And he even asked a few, not too long ago, you know, what do I need to do schooling-wise? Like, where do I need to go to be a chef. And we said, well, it's culinary school. And we started looking at different culinary schools. And so now I'm an expert on the best culinary schools in the country. So if you want to go to a good one, just come and ask me. And we've, we've already done our research. So that's, that's Micaiah. Weston is a little bit different. He's five. Uh, he'll be six this summer. And uh, right now, he wants to be paid to play video games. <laughs> All right. All right. I think you got that, but let me, let me say this a little, bit, a little bit more clearly. He doesn't want to develop video games. He doesn't want to work for a company that comes up with the ideas. He wants to sit on the couch and be, played, be paid to play video games. That's, that's what Weston wants right now. Some of you are thinking, that's the life, and uh, others not so much. Um, Phillips is our four-year-old, and uh, man, he's just amazing. He, he really is. They all are. I love all my kids. And uh, Phillips right now, he wants to be a scuba diver. And uh, isn't that kind of cool, though? I think that's pretty neat. So we, uh, I'm not really an outdoorsman. I've shared that with you guys before, but I like being outside. There's a difference between being an outdoorsman and liking to be outside. Um, I couldn't survive on my own. I've, I've said that before. I'd need to take some of you with me if I was stranded in the wilderness by myself. But uh, he wants to be a scuba diver, and we love to watch, uh, like, fishing shows together. And he likes to watch uh, videos on YouTube with me about guys who, who scuba dive and see all the different fish. And this was so amazing this week. Faith asked him why he wants to be a scuba diver, and he looked up. And if you know Phillips, this is just, he's always wired, but he just had that moment of clarity. And he said, I want to be a scuba diver so I can make enough money to buy Mommy a pretty dress. And, uh, and a Barbie. And a Barbie. Sorry. A pretty dress and a Barbie. And I thought, man, that, that's awesome. I think he's a mama's boy, for sure. So then there's Elliot. He's one, he'll be two pretty soon. And he can't really tell us yet what exactly wants, what he wants to be. If one of his brothers say one thing, that's what he wants to be. But he, from my perspective, and I think Faith will agree with this, that he, he just wants to do anything that scares mom and dad half to death. That's what he wants to do. So he, he wants, while we're watching TV, he wants to climb one of the chairs in the kitchen and fall over. Um, he wants to write on the walls of the uh, house that we're renting. Um, he wants to run with sharp objects in his hand. That, that's what Elliot wants to do with his life right now. And, uh, and it does, man. It just scares mom and dad half to death. I'll tell you, though, when I ask this question to my kids, my favorite response 
And I'll give you a second, maybe you can think about what it is. It's, it's few and far between, but I do hear it from time to time. And, and so I'll ask them, what do you want to be when you get older? And they say, I want to be like dad. You know, I want to, I want to be like dad. And man, when I hear that, it's enough to just melt your heart. It really is. Because I love my boys so much, and I don't get to see them as much as my wife does. You know, she's at home with them. Uh, she homeschools, and she's with them all the time. And so I get home, and I get, you know, just bear hugs when I walk in the door. And, and so when I hear that, it's just like, and that's so awesome. They, they don't know the intimate details of what I do yet. Uh, Micaiah does a little bit, and we, we have those open discussions. And, you know, I want them to grow up to love the church. And I'm, I was challenged early on to pray that, you know, my boys would be in ministry if, if that's God's plan for them. You know, we don't have enough men and women who are in ministry today. We don't. I think David Upchurch shared that last week that um, with the age of 40 and under, it's about one in out of every seven pastors in the local church today, you know, and so when I hear things like that, it just, it's enough to break your heart. So today's beatitude is, is in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. And it says, it says these words, we'll read it on the screen. It says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And this beatitude, the first thing that stood out to me this week, is that Jesus is calling each and every one of us to be agents of peace. There's the light. He's calling us to be agents of peace. And when we do this, hear this, you and I are following in the footsteps of our Heavenly Father. We're following in the footsteps of our Heavenly Father. Matthew 5, 9 is saying, happy are those who actively pursue peace in their lives. They will be called children of God. Happy are the peacemakers. Jesus is saying you are a son or daughter of God when you're a peacemaker for God. Jesus didn't say, happy are those who love peace. You know, I, I think all across the room this morning, we would say, I love peace. I want peace in my lives, right? But he didn't say, happy are those who love peace. He, he didn't say, happy are the peaceable, you know, individuals who never get disturbed uh, by anything or anyone. Jesus is saying, happy are those who make peace. People who have the kind of character that causes right relationships with other people. Now, the word peace, this is so interesting. It's seen over 400 times throughout God's word, from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, This word in Hebrew and in Greek really has the same meaning, and that is that it's always an active word. Peace is an active word. It's a call to be intentional peacemakers in our everyday lives. So as we talk about what it means to be a peacemaker today, I I thought we would start by discussing some of the misconceptions Uh, that people tend to have about what it means to be a peacemaker, what it means to actively pursue peace in our lives. So if you're taking notes, uh, the first misconception that I think people tend to have is this, uh, that being a peacemaker, it's not avoiding people or trouble. It's not avoiding people or trouble. You know, the kind of peace that Jesus is talking about, peace that, that brings joy. Remember that word blessed, at the beginning of each beatitude is the Greek word makarios, and it means happy or, or joy. He's showing us how we can have joy in our lives despite the circumstances that, that we have. So the kind of peace that Jesus is talking about, peace that brings joy, it doesn't come from avoiding difficult people or trouble. I need you to hear that this morning. The kind of joy doesn't come from avoiding difficult people or trouble. Instead, it comes from facing these things. It's, it's actively facing an issue instead of letting it continue to exist 
as is. So the first misconception, it's not avoiding people or trouble. The second misconception, if you're taking notes, is this, that it's not appeasing people or situations. Being a peacemaker is not about appeasing people or situations. You know, peace, especially in Scripture, and the word appeasing are not synonyms. They're not, they're not equal dance partners. They don't mean the same thing. Appeasing means that you always give in, that you let the other person get their way. It's, it's letting people walk all over you. That's passivity, and that's not what we see in the life of Jesus. In fact, if you look at the life of Jesus, he was actually a very controversial person at times. He, he stood his ground on a number of issues uh, that, were, that were important to God. And he didn't live his life to appease people or situations. Instead, he actively pursued peace. And there is a difference. Peacemakers don't avoid people, and they don't avoid trouble. They, they don't appease every person or situation in their lives. Here's what I think a peacemaker does. I think peacemakers actively seek to resolve conflict and restore broken relationships. Peacemakers actively seek to resolve conflict and help restore broken relationships. So a good question for us today is why why should I be a peacemaker? You know, we've all got difficult people in our lives. Sometimes it just feels like it's more effort uh, then what's worth it to you know, put out the effort to be a peacemaker? Why should I be a peacemaker? I want to give you um, three truths this morning that are deeply rooted in Scripture of why I believe God is calling every person to be a peacemaker. The first one is this, that unresolved conflict hurts my relationship with God. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but unresolved conflict in our life hurts our relationship with Jesus. God, God's word teaches us that we cannot have a growing and thriving relationship with Jesus when we have a multiple or even a single unhealthy and broken relationship with the people in our lives. It's very difficult to have a thriving relationship with Jesus when that's the case. First uh, John chapter 4, verse 20 says this, if someone says, I love God, but hates a fellow believer, that person is a liar. That's kind of (laughs) hard. For if we don't love people that we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see? You know, if you have unresolved conflict with the people in your lives, it'll greatly, greatly affect your relationship with God. Uh, this this past week, not, not this weekend like yesterday, but the weekend before, I had the privilege of attending just a beautiful outdoor wedding. And it was from two of our church members, Natalie and Jonathan. And I'm going to pick on them just a little bit this morning. I wanted to ask Natalie about this this week, but she was on her honeymoon. So let's welcome them back first and foremost this morning. Uh, we're glad that you guys are back. <laughs> In the future, I will ask, but they weren't around. So Natalie, when they were giving their vows, she just said, and and they were both amazing, um, but she said something that really has stuck with me all week. And she was promising uh, God and Jonathan that in their marriage, she was going to view their marriage as a triangle, and that she would be in one corner, and Jonathan would be in the other, and that God would be at the top. And she said, as both of us focus on Christ in our lives, um, we're going to naturally move closer to one another. And I thought that was just so beautiful, and there's so much truth to that. You know, if you're, if you're growing close to God and the other person that you have conflict with is growing closer to God, it'll inevitably pull the two, the, the two of you closer together. Um, but here's the reality is that um, that's usually not the case when we have conflict 
Um, it's great when it's that way, and both people want to work at resolving conflict and restore relationship, but sometimes the conflict is just so great, and it's, it's, it's so difficult. You know, when our, relationship, uh, with, with our relationships with people suffer um, horizontally, our relationship with God suffers vertically. And when we actively decide to live as agents of peace, uh, when we seek peace with, with others, it helps our relationship with God. And, and it really is a cycle. You know, if our, if our relationship with Jesus is thriving and we're growing in our relationship with God, it affects every other relationship in our life. If our relationship with other people are, are, are hurting and we're not giving them the attention they need, it affects our relationship with God. It, it's, a, it's a cycle. So ideally, we would, we would focus on loving Jesus with all that we are and we would seek to be people who are agents of peace that we actively seek peace with the people in our lives. The second thing that I want to talk about, uh, why, why we should be peacemakers, is this, that unresolved conflict hinders my prayer life. Unresolved conflict hinders my prayer life. I think this is a truth that a lot of people really don't want to uh, address or talk about, but it's, it's very scriptural. First uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 7 says this. In, in the same way, You husbands must give honor to your wives. Treat your wife with understanding as you live together. She may be weaker than you are, but she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. And then hear hear this, church. Uh, Treat her as you should so that your prayers will not be hindered. If you go back a little bit in Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 23 and 24, um, we, we read about this idea that, that reconciliation or actively pursuing peace, restoring relationships, it's actually a prerequisite for worshiping God in our lives. Well, listen to this, Matthew five twenty three and 24. It says, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, if you're, if you're worshiping God, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you. What does it tell us to do? Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Man. You know, when you gather with the church on Sundays, I don't call the building the church. The building isn't the church. We're the church. When the church gathers every week and you're excited, you're ready to worship God through song. You're, you're ready to worship God through your giving. Um, you, you've been thinking about and you're ready to, to take communion and, and worship God and remember the sacrifice that he made. When you're ready to gather with the church and worship and, then, and right there you remember that someone has something against you or you have something against someone else, Scripture tells us to go. Be reconciled to that person and then come and offer your gift. I was telling Faith this week, I wouldn't be mad at all if that's what our worship services look like. If we begin our worship and then uh, on a weekly basis people remember the conflict and some of the things they have going on in their lives and they drop what they're doing and they just walk out the doors and they go and they are agents of peace. They seek to reconcile relationships. I also want to say this, you know, nothing can substitute for reconciliation or, or peace in, in our lives. You, you and I, we, we can never give enough. We can never read our Bibles uh, enough. We, we can never worship enough. Nothing can substitute for reconciliation 
in our lives. And I would also say this, that if you're having a hard time getting an answer to prayer today, examine your relationships. Examine your relationships. Make sure that you're actively pursuing peace. So according to Scripture, so that your prayers are not hindered. Actively pursue peace. Unresolved conflict hinders our prayers. The third thing that I'd like you to write down this morning if you're taking notes is this, that unresolved conflict fosters resentment, not reconciliation. Unresolved conflict fosters resentment, not reconciliation. In fact, uh, unresolved conflict does the opposite of what the Beatitudes aim uh, to teach us and, and what, the, what Jesus' goal was for, for us in applying those to our lives. Here's what I mean by that. Instead of bringing joy into our lives, unresolved conflict hinders our happiness. Instead of bringing joy into our lives, unresolved conflict hinders our happiness. And I'll be the first one to say today, when I'm in conflict with my wife, as perfect as she is, when I'm in conflict with my wife, I am miserable. I'm miserable. When I'm in conflict with a friend or when I'm in conflict with an elder or a church member, I'm, I'm miserable. Unresolved conflict will foster resentment in our lives. It, it'll grow resentment. It'll take root in our lives and it'll turn into something that God never intended for it to be. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 through 48, uh, we read these words. You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And in that way, you will be acting, here it is, as true children of your Father in heaven. You're following in your Father's footsteps. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. Matthew is the author. He, he was a corrupt tax collector. He knows a little bit about that. And then he says, if, if you're kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect, even as your heavenly, even as your father in heaven is perfect. I would say this, church, that resentment is never a good thing. Resentment is never a good thing. When when you begin to foster resentment, it will monopolize your attitude. It'll completely take over all the other beatitudes that we've been talking about. It'll take, over, it'll take over everything in your life. It'll take over your attitude at work, your attitude when you get home from work, with, with your friends, with, with your family. It ends up being the only thing that you think about, and it'll tear you apart. I, I've seen up close and from a distance how fostering resentment will turn faith into fear. We're not called to be people of fear. We're called to be people of faith. I've seen how unresolved conflict can turn peace into conflict. I've seen how it turns happiness into sorrow. Some of the most sorrowful people that I've come in contact with have been people in the church. We're supposed to be people full of joy, people who, who don't foster resentment, people who forgive and, and who are peacemakers, who are agents of peace. This was never the way that God meant for us to live. He wants us to learn to be peacemakers so that there is joy in our lives. 
a joy that the world cannot change, a joy that's untouchable by your circumstances. You know, I believe that being a peacemaker is something that we have to learn uh, to become. It's not something that, that you learn overnight. It's something that's learned, I think, through trial and error, just simply by being obedient to God's word and applying some of the things that we read. So the last half of the, the sermon this morning, I want to give you five action steps that, I, that, again, are rooted in Scripture, but I believe will help you learn to be a peacemaker. These are things that you can apply today. The first thing is this, if you're taking notes. Uh, the first action step is plan a peace conference. Plan a peace conference. Uh, Matthew 5, 23 and 24, we read this together just a minute ago. It says, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Jesus is saying this, you take the initiative. You take the initiative. Don't wait for the other person to make the first move. It doesn't matter if you're the one offended or if you're the offender. It's always your move. It's always your move. Uh, the reason that it's your move is because that is what Jesus did for us. Uh, scripture says that when we were at our very worst, God made the first move. We've read this scripture. It's one of my favorite verses at Romans 5.8. It says, but God showed his great love for us. By sending Christ to die for us, and here it is, while we were still sinners. To the world's eyes, we should be the unreconcilable. We're, we're, we're the ones who don't deserve it. But it's while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. And then John chapter, or 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, it says, We love each other, not because of anything that we've done, but because he loved us first. We love because he loved us first. Church, if you're in conflict with someone today, it's your move to make. You should always take the initiative in pursuing peace. Why? Because that's what Jesus did for you. And that's what he calls us to do towards other people as followers of Jesus. And I truly believe the longer you wait to resolve conflict, the more difficult it becomes to resolve. Again, it takes root. It grows. It takes over your life. And it's, it's difficult to, to pull the roots that are, that are deep. It's difficult to get rid of them. Plan a peace conference. You make the first move. The second thing is this. Empathize with their feelings. Okay, men, this is hard for us to do sometimes. <laughs> I'm just going to come out there and say it. Empathize with their feelings. Philippians chapter 2, verse 4 says, Let each of you look, and if you like to underline anything in your Bible, underline that word look. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Uh, what I think is so amazing about this verse is that the word look, it also means consider. That, that's how we translate it from, from the original Greek. Now, the word in Greek, it, it also means, it's the word skopos, and this is where we get our English word for scope. It means that we take a, a closer look. It means we take an intentional look. And we don't just look and, and think about the needs of others. We figure out how to meet those needs. It's finding resolution. It's solving the problem. It means that you pay close attention. You think about the needs of others. You think what they really need. And then you do, uh, you allow God to move in your life and, and allow you to meet those needs. Now, I don't know about you. If you're anything like me, when there's conflict in my life, when I'm upset, I tend to only think about myself. 
I do. I tend to think about my own needs, my own hurts. I think about my own wants. That, that's all that really clouds my mind. But being a peacemaker means that we actively reverse this kind of thinking, that we learn to think about the needs of other people first. So you, so you hold a peace conference. You decide, we're going to have a specific time set aside where we're going to hash things out. We're going to talk about this. We're not going to bring other issues up. All right, that's something we talk about in marriage counseling, that sometimes it's good to just get away with the two of you and only set aside time for one specific topic because you start bringing other things into the conversation and it just wrecks it. So you hold a peace conference. You think about how you can meet the needs of the other person first. You focus on their needs, not your own. And as you think about their needs, you decide ahead of time that you're going to refuse to hold a grudge. You're going to refuse to hold a grudge. Refuse to allow your hurt to keep you from being a peacemaker. Your pride and your hurt and your wants, that will keep you from being an agent of peace. A great thing about conflict, if there is one, I think most of us would probably say conflict isn't great, but if there is something good about conflict, it's this, that when you finally resolve conflict, it usually leads to greater intimacy between you and the other person. And here's why. It's because you've been a good listener. It's because you've met the needs of the other person. You've been intentional about serving the other person before uh, meeting your own needs. You've been listening to their needs. You empathize with their feelings. So empathize with their feelings. The third action step is this. Address, and this is so important, address the problem, not the person. Address the problem, not the the person. You know, we, we can't focus on fixing the problem and fixing the blame at the same time. That's really difficult to do. So if you, you plan a peace conference, you plan a meeting, and you think about the other person's needs ahead of time, you should also decide that you're, you're not going to show up and, and place the blame on the other person. That's not the goal of the peace conference. You're not going to show up and place blame and put everything on them. There's always two sides. If placing the blame on the other person is your first move and it's your motive for wanting to meet in the first place, then I'll tell you this, you can forget about resolving conflict. You can forget about it. Proverbs 15 verse 1 says that a gentle answer deflects anger. Man, I love that. A gentle answer, it's like your shield. It deflects anger. It doesn't allow it into your lives. But harsh words make tempers flare. I think we would all agree with that. You know, this, this is why these are action steps that help us move towards peace. You follow them in order to hopefully reach a healthy conclusion, the, the conclusion that God wants, and that's peace in our lives. You know, when, when we address the problem and not the person, we engage our mind before we engage our mouth. When you decide ahead of time to address the problem and not the person, you engage your mind before you engage your mouth. You give the Holy Spirit room to move in your own life before you say something to someone else. If you're anything like me, I, sometimes I, I speak out of the moment, out of passion, and I don't give the Holy Spirit time or the room to move in my own life. We've got to think about these things first. So we should address the problem, not the person. Addressing the problem means that, that we, we don't criticize, condemn, or, or compare when we have this, this meeting. Ephesians 4.29, it says, don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good 
and helpful. It doesn't say maybe a few words that you say or half of the words. It says, let everything that you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. You know, I believe that a peacemaker says things that builds others up, not things that puts others down. So we focus on addressing the problem. We don't address the person. People are not projects. We're called to love people where they're at and allow God to work through us and, and work in their life. The fourth thing is this, that we should cooperate as much as possible. This is another really difficult thing for me to do. I'm really preaching to myself today. Um, so uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 18, it says, If it's possible... And then I underline this next phrase, as far as it depends on you. Here's that idea that it's, you're, you're the first move. It's not the other person. It's, it's you. So if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Not just your friends, not just the people you like. Everyone. See, I believe that a mark for all Christians should be our ability, because of the grace of God, to get along with others. We should be able, that should be a mark of what it means to be a Christian, that we, we know how to get along with others. It, it's not how much, again, that you pray or read your Bible or sing or give. Those are amazing things. Those are great spiritual disciplines that God wants all of us uh, to do and have in our lives. But the real question is this this morning. Do you, do you get along with people? Do you care about and do you love people? Again, some of the most loving people that I've ever met have been in the church, but also some of the most hateful people that I've ever met have been in the church. Do you genuinely care about people? Do you love people? Uh, John chapter 13, verse 35 says, By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. He's saying the mark of a Christian, the mark of a true disciple is, is how you love people. And if you look at Romans twelve eighteen, you remember the phrase, as far as it depends on you. You know, I, I believe there are some people in our lives that are just, they're just really difficult to get along with. Sometimes there's issues that are just not going to be able to be resolved. But as Christians, we are called to do everything possible, it says, to work towards peace. And peace is not always easy. In fact, it's, it's really hard. And peace always has a price. As you are living your life as an agent of peace for Jesus, peace will always have a price. If you want peace in your home, if you want peace in your marriage, if you want peace at work with your children and your friendships, there will always be a price. Peace will cost you your ego. Peace will cost you your pride. Peace will cost you your self-centeredness. You have to be willing to admit that you're wrong when you're wrong. Again, add that to the list of things that I'm just I'm preaching to the choir today. James 3.17 says, But the wisdom from above is first of all pure. It is also peace-loving, gentle at times, and willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism and is always sincere. You know, I would say that if you want people to cooperate with you, especially in times of conflict, you have to be willing to cooperate with other people. If you want people to be nice to you, you have to be willing to be nice to them. If you want people to compromise, you have to be willing to compromise. You can't control what other people do. It starts with you. 
You know, if all we're doing is planting seeds of, of, of griping and complaining and arguing and putting others down, then all we're going to harvest is conflict in our lives. That's the only thing. But if we're planting the seeds of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, the the fruits of the Spirit, you and I are going to harvest peace and we're going to harvest healthy relationships in our life, God-honoring relationships that point to Jesus. That's what we're going to harvest. God wants us to learn how to cooperate with each other and, and as we work to resolve conflict, as we work to reconcile relationships, and as we work toward peace. The fifth and final thing is this. We should emphasize reconciliation, not just resolution. We've been talking about resolution, and I think finding, uh, you know, resolving conflict is so important, but if that is our focus, then we've missed the main thing. The main thing is reconciliation. To to reconcile means that we work to reestablish the relationship. The relationship matters more than the resolution. You know, a lot of times there's some legitimate, honest differences between husband and wives, between employees and bosses, between men and women, between church member and church member. There are honest differences, and a lot of times you're not going to be able to resolve some of those issues up front. But you should work towards reconciliation. You should pray about and seek to have the relationship restored. Reconcile means that you bury the hatchet, but not always the issue. You might have to bring the issue back up from time to time. But when you do, you do it with intentionality, you do it with integrity, and you do it with harmony uh, with your friend. You can learn to disagree agreeably. You learn to walk arm in arm together instead of seeing eye to eye on every issue. We're we're not going to see eye to eye on everything, but we can learn as followers of Jesus to walk arm in arm with the mission that God has given us in the church, in our marriages, in our families, as we raise kids, in our jobs. We can walk arm in arm for the glory of God. Amen? You can have reconciliation without resolving every problem. Uh, Reconciliation focuses on the relationship. Resolution focuses on the issue or the problem. And I believe that when you focus on reconciliation, uh, we'll call that side A, then side B often becomes insignificant. When you focus on A, reconciliation, you say, we're married, let's be on the same team. When you have a major disagreement in your home about how to raise kids, and I'm talking to the married couples this morning, uh, how to spend money or, or the topic of sex. Those are just the issues. First, focus on reconciling the relationship, and then often when you do that, uh, A, the issues start to resolve themselves. Uh, B, they don't seem as important. Or C, at least now, at very minimum, you have two people working arm in arm, working on the same team in the same direction to resolve conflict. So let's be a people who focus on emphasizing reconciliation, not just resolution. We should focus on restored relationship, not just resolving the conflict. I want to end our time today by reading 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. This is our charge. This is the, the call that God has for us as individuals and as the church. It says, And this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And then hear this. 
He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. This should be part of what our purpose is as a church, to see relationships restored, to see relationships thriving for Jesus. Two words stand out to me here, and that's the word reconciled and reconciliation. You see, God models what he wants you to do. He's our perfect example. You could say that the synonym for peacemaker is reconciler. Those two do go hand in hand. And this is someone who brings people together. You see, God sent Jesus to reconcile us to himself, to restore that relationship so that we could have peace with God. God is the original peacemaker. He modeled what it means to be a peacemaker so that we can be peacemakers towards others. Church, you and I are called to be agents of peace. This should be front and center of the mission that God has given us as individuals, as a church, and our families. Because when you help restore relationships, you're doing what Jesus has done and would do. When you help restore relationships, you are following in your Father's footsteps. You're being a child of God. Matthew 5, 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. 